Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks here at Christ's Covenant, one of the things we've been saying is that Christians have both inward-facing relationships and outward-facing relationships. Of course, our inward-facing relationships are those relationships that we have with other believers, the relationships that we have uh, like this right now, as we gather to worship with other believers in a Christian community that you have with your small group, that you have with your other Christian friends, and those are really important. We need those kinds of relationships. But we also said that Christians also have outward-facing relationships. These are the relationships that we have with people that are not believers, the people that, that don't have a saving knowledge of God in Christ, the people that are not Christians. And these relationships are also really, really important. One of the things that we've been saying is that what the Bible says about you, if you are in Christ, is that you are a priest. And you know what a priest is? A priest is one who makes intercession for others. It, it, a priest is one who appeals to God on the behalf of man. And we've also seen in Scripture that the Bible says that you are ambassadors. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is a representative, someone who represents Christ and his kingdom to others. God, it says, God makes his appeal through you. This is an incredibly important role. It's an incredibly important responsibility that we all have. So we've talked about this passage. It's been an incredibly important passage for us. We've talked about how to pray uh, for those outward-facing relationships. We, we've talked about kind of what those relationships look like, how there's different kinds of folks that we're appealing to. But this week, I want to spend some time just thinking about what do you say, right? How do you season your conversation with gospel salt as we saw, as we see in the passage? And so if you're here today and, and you are a believer, which I know is, is, is most of you, this is going to be helpful for you. If you're here today and you're not a believer and you're, you've come with a friend, you've come to kind of explore what Christians believe, I'm really glad that you're here. And I think this will also be really helpful for you because it, it will, in a sense, be an explanation of what it is that Christians believe. So let's look at the passage again. I want to just focus on verse 6, but look at verse 5 and 6 again with me. It says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And again, really what I want to say is, is how do you, what do you say? <laughs> how, do you, how do you begin to share your faith with people out on the outside, the people that aren't believers? I hope some of you um, got to watch the little video I sent out this week on email of the story of a gal that I met one time on a Southwest flight. And we just had a normal conversation and it became a gospel conversation. And God used that to radically change her life. If you didn't get to hear kind of her story, I'd encourage you 
to go and watch that. But, but how do you do that, right? How do you have these kinds of conversations? When I was a kid, I went to uh, a very kind of evangelistic church, and, and we would have like evangelism training in the church. And they would give us all these kind of methods of evangelism. Like some of you maybe have heard of the Roman road, right? The Roman road of salvation, which is basically a series of Bible verses that you memorize in the books of, of Romans. And if you kind of can walk people through these verses and, and hopefully the end is that they come to faith in Christ. Or some of you may have heard of uh, the four spiritual laws, right? This was a campus crusade tool that was very, very popular. Some of you may have heard of the way of the master, uh, Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron kind of do this. And it's a, it's a tool that people use to help people see that they need a savior. There's a new tool called the three circles. And all of these tools are good. I'm, I'm not certainly not disparaging any of these, but you would go to evangelism training uh, in your church, and they would have these little videos. There was always a video, and it was always easy for the guy in the video, right? Like, he would just walk up to a random person and start, like, saying Romans 3.23, and the next thing you know, they were praying, and that person was becoming a Christian. And so you'd be like, man, that's just so easy. And then I would go out and try to share my faith, and it was hard, and it was awkward, and it was strange, and people would look at me weird, and so how do you do this? And really what I want to do today is rather than kind of give you a formula, this is what you need to do, I want to kind of give you a template. It, 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 it's not going to be super precise. It, it's a template that's going to require you to fill it in. But it's basically these are the things that in order for someone to, to come to faith, these are the kind of hurdles that you have to overcome. These are the kinds of things that there has to be agreement on. And the, the template that I'm going to give you is, is not a, an unfamiliar one. It's actually something that we talk about in maybe a subtle way that is kind of really frames out all of the ministry we do. And it, it is this template of God, man, Jesus, and response. In fact, the, the worship service today, I don't know if you notice this or not, has on all of our worship services, have, have actually followed this template. The, the first song that we sang, if you... We're paying attention. It was behold our God, right? We're, we're framing our understanding of God. He's high and lifted up. He's holy. He's majestic. And then, of course, in light of that, in light of who God is, what did Jordan do? He led us in a time of confession. We kind of understand, okay, who are we? Then we sang there is a fountain, right? The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he washed all my sins away, right? Well, it was a confession that we're as vile as the thief on the cross. So we understand our condition because of our sin before a holy God. And then, of course, we move to Jesus. What has Jesus done? Our sins, they are many, but what? His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. We have hope in Christ. And, of course, after the sermon today, we'll respond to all of this. We'll, we'll come together in response as we take the Lord's Supper together. This is how we form our covenant kids ministry. Every week in our covenant kids ministry, if you have children back there, this is what they're, they're learning about God. They're learning about our response to God, our sin before God, our need for a savior in Christ and how we respond to this good news. So this is not something that um, is obscure to you. This is a formula that I hope you're very used to if you've been a part of our church for any number of time. But um, but, but I do think this is what needs to be framed. This is what needs to be shaped in anyone's heart 
for them to be a believer. One of the reasons that we do this over and over and over again in our lives is it needs to be shaped in our hearts, right? We're discipling ourselves, if you will, all the time. We're reminding ourselves. We're, we're pulling ourselves away from the illusions of this world that we are all a part of, and we're calling ourselves back into the true story every single week, hopefully every single day as we encounter the living God. And this is really what the work of evangelism. This is the same thing that needs to happen in our hearts is really what we're saying. Hey, would you be active in inviting your outward facing relationships into this kind of, uh, into this kind of understanding of the world, understanding of God. So let's begin just kind of looking at this God. What is the understanding of God? This is a question you have to ask that the person that you're trying to share your faith with has what is their understanding of God? How do they understand who God is? And here's what I want to say: every person that you've ever encountered has some concept of God, okay? And whatever their God is, they want to be in good with God, right? They, they want to be accepted by God. So, of course, as Christians, um, we believe in a God. And, 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 and let me just say here, every kind of worldview frames their understanding of God in a certain way, right? So it, it, everybody wants to be in good with God, but the, the question is, is who is God or what is God? And every worldview kind of frames their understanding of God in a particular way. And so there's three things that I want to kind of look at with you, three things that, that really shape everyone's concept of, of God, or how they're living. And first of all, there is an authority, right? Everyone has some sort of understanding of an authority. So as Christians, of course, we believe that the authority is God, is the God of Scripture, the God that we see revealed in His Word. And actually, we believe that what He has revealed, what He has spoken to us in the Scripture is authoritative, that, that He has manifested Himself. We, he's not just a mystery, right? We can know God. God has expressed himself to us in what he has revealed to us in his word. And then, of course, in how he has shown himself to be in the person and the work of Jesus, right? This is who we believe God is and, and how we understand who is authoritative. But a Muslim has the same kind of idea. They, they have believed that there's some authority, except for the authority that a Muslim would hold to is not the God of the Bible, but the God of the Quran, right? And the authority that they would want to live by is the authority of what is revealed in the holy book of the Quran. And so because the Bible and the Quran, for example, have a very different understanding of God and godliness, a Muslim and a Christian are very, have very different understandings of the world, right? So every person, no matter who you are, is appealing to some sort of authority. Now, you may say, well, hold on, I know some, a lot of like really secular, atheistic people, they don't have any understanding of a God, of a deity in the same way. But I would say that they are appealing to some sort of authority. There's some authority in their life, something that they're appealing to. It could be, you know, some understanding of science. It could be the academy. It could be popular opinion. It could be journalism. It, it could be whatever the elites are saying, right? Uh, in a postmodern world that we, we find ourselves in, the new authority, kind of the authority of this modern secular moment that we're in, is self-expression, right? If you say it is so, it is so. You have your own kind of self-autonomous authority or self-determined authority. 
So every concept of God has an authority. And what comes with that concept of authority is some sort of concept of order, some sort of concept of, or, of morality. Again, everybody holds to this, right? Every person that you'll ever meet has some sort of understanding of order or uh, morality. So as Christians, of course, we believe that God, the God of Scripture that has shown himself to us in his word, in the, son, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, has also ordered the world, right? People talk a lot about the true, the good, and the beautiful. We want to pursue the true, the good, and the beautiful, but we, we believe that we can know what is true and what is good, right? If you're saying, I want to, some people will say, well, I just want to pursue what's true, good, and beautiful. Well, then you have to say, well, what truth, right? What good? What beauty, right? Who's determining this? And of course, we believe that God, who has revealed himself, has ordered the world that he is ultimately true. And so truth is found in him and what he has revealed. And he is ultimately good. And so good is found in him and what he has revealed. And he is ultimately beautiful. And beauty, real beauty, what is really good is found in the Lord. And of course, God has revealed himself. We can know this. This is one of the journeys that we are on together. But everyone has a concept of order. Everyone has a concept of morals. And again, people are very moralistic. I just should hear this. A lot of people think, oh, well, Christians are moralistic. No, everybody's moralistic. Uh, you've heard me talk about kind of river city ethics. I talked about this a few weeks ago. And this is kind of the mid-20th century American Christian moralism. I, I use the term river city ethics, which is based on the fictional town from the musical The Music Man, and none of y'all had seen The Music Man, but I keep going back to River City Ethics because it helps me out. But anyway, River City Ethics, this little town, there's a church on every corner, there's a way that you're supposed to live in River City, there's an order that you're supposed to follow, there's certainly a sense of morality in River City, and the thing that you don't want to do in River City is be caught in the pool hall, because if you're caught down there, then you're outcast, you're not a part of the moral order of that town. But again, everyone has a sense of morality. Now, the, the, the problem with a lot of this kind of 20th century Christian moralism is that it's not very Christian, right? It's confusing because a lot of 20th century Christian mor moralism grabs parts of Christianity, but it ignores weightier parts of Christianity. In fact, this is one of the things that Jesus rebuked the most during his time on earth. Remember Matthew 23, where he goes to the Pharisees and he says, you hypocrites, you, you tied the dill, you tied the mint, but you've forsaken the weightier matters of the law, things like justice, things like mercy, things like righteousness. He said, of course, it's not that the tithe is bad, but don't neglect the weightier things of the law. But everyone behaves this way. And there is today a kind of secular moralism that is just as judgmental or even more judgmental than any sort of Christian moralism. Uh, and this has been really on display. If you don't believe this, it's, <laughs> if you didn't believe it before 2020, it's been really on display in the past year. There is righteous indignation everywhere, right? 
Aren't you like terrified all the time that someone will see you doing something that you're not supposed to do or that you'll say something that you're not supposed to do? There is this moral ethic around us all the time and, and it, it, we're terrified to step out of it. Everyone is claiming the moral high ground. And this leads to kind of the third pillar in anyone's concept of God. So there's an authority, there's a morality or an order. And then third, there's a community. There's, there's people who know God, right? There's people who are, uh, have agreed to this concept of God, whatever it is. So of course, as Christians, we believe that the community of God is the church, those of faith, those who know God in Christ. And again, this is so important. We're pursuing God together. We're pursuing the knowledge of this one who is all authoritative. We're pursuing to know his order and to live by it because in his order, that which is true and good and beautiful. And if you're a Christian, you need to be a part of a community of faith. You need to be a part of a local church. Don't think that you can ultimately just serve the Lord as a lone ranger. That's, that's certainly not biblical Christianity. So if that's you, if you think I can serve the Lord as a lone ranger and not as a part of a local church, you have bought into a false understanding of Christianity. That's not what the Bible would say about how the Christian life is to be lived out. But again, everyone behaves this way. Everyone, whatever your concept of God is, has some sort of a community that you are appealing to. So again, again, a secular kind of understanding of God would have the same kind of community. You want to be in this kind of community and, and you don't want to be, and this has also been on display, shunned by the community. There's this idea of shunning. Now, when you hear that word, you might think of it's kind of like a Christian word, or maybe like if Amish communities or something like that. You don't want to be shunned. But, but kind of this secular morality is big on the shun. They, they use the shun. It's, it, what we know of it is cancel culture, right? If you behave in a certain way that doesn't follow the code of the day or doesn't follow this kind of understanding of what is ethic, ethical or what is moral, you are outcast. You are excommunicated. You are not part of the community. And, and a lot of these secular kind of understandings of God and authority, there is no grace. There is no forgiveness. These things that, these ideas of grace and forgiveness and mercy that we hold to so dearly as Christians, they are not present in a secular moralism in large part. So people will say, I want to be accepted by this group. I want to be in this community. And even in this postmodern postmodern kind of God of self-expression, God of self-determination, even in this world, that, that God of self-expression still needs communal affirmation, right? I just want you to hear this. If you have the God of self-expression, I'm self-determined, and I don't need to appeal to any God. I can understand the God within. That still needs external affirmation or communal affirmation. A lot of you guys have sent me texts or emails this week asking about the Equality Act that was passed in the House of Representatives last week. And the best way to understand the Equality Act is that it is a response to the desire of the LGBTQ and particularly the transgender community that desires affirmation for self-expression. It's a self-expression that wants the federal government to protect broad affirmation of that self-expression, right? 
But you see what's going on here. All of this is related to concept of God, this need for authority, this need for some sort of moral order, and this need for a community to affirm that authority and that moral order. And, and why this is so important for you to understand is that as you're sharing your faith, every person that you encounter has framed up God in this way. There, there is some God. Now, what, what you have to discern as you build a relationship with someone is how do they understand who God is, right? So before you can jump to all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Who is God, right? What is sin? What, is it, what are the consequences of falling short, right? And so the first stop as you think about evangelism is to understand how do they frame out an understanding of God? How do they frame out the who of who God is? Because everybody has some concept. Now, we live in a culture, we live in a time when people will want to say, well, let's just be pluralistic, right? You live in a pluralistic city. There's a lot of different understandings of God out there. And we live in a time where people just want to say, look, you do you, right? You, you believe this, that's great. I'll believe this. Just don't tell me, you know, to believe anything else. But of course, that's impossible. That doesn't work. And ultimately, what the, the message of the culture will be in that kind of setting is that you should stay quiet about the most important things. And I guess I just want to warn you, church, probably most of us have been affected by that messaging, which is why probably most of us have been so convicted by this sermon series. Because the message of the culture is, look, it's fine for you to believe what you believe. Just don't share it to me. You've, you've bought into this cultural message of just stay quiet about the most important thing that you believe. Just don't raise the flag. Just don't make too much of a fuss about it. And really the hope of this series is that we would be the kind of people that have outward-facing, meaningful outward-facing relationships, that we could lead people who have all sorts of concepts of who God is, concepts that will ultimately fail them, that we could be the kind of people that would lead those people into a meaningful relationship with the true God who is truly authoritative, who has truly ordered the world, who is truly forming a community, an eternal community that he's calling into relationship with himself, that we would be the kind of people that would open the eyes of the world to this good news. Now, I think the instruction here, though, is really helpful. Let your speech be gracious. <laughs> Some of you might be feeling convicted right now because you don't say anything. But I want some of you to be feeling convicted because you're not gracious, right? I know there are some folks out there and you're like, yeah, I know the world. It's in trouble. They believe all kinds of crazy stuff out there. And so you, as I've said, pull out your Bible verse machine gun and just say, I'm about to mow these, I'm about to mow these pagans down with truth. That's not, the, that's not what the scripture says. That's not the instruction. Let your... Let your conversation be gracious. Be gracious. Now, look, when, when we have inward-facing relationships, conversations with other believers, 
there are times to be firm and be corrective, right? If you're calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and I see you living, I need to remind you of the covenant that you have made with the Lord. But to outward-facing relationships, people on the outside, what is the instruction? What is the heart of Christ there? It's to be gracious. It's to be seasoned with salt. I, I just want to say to some of you, I think that your posture toward the outside world, toward outward-facing relationship, is more formed by radio or TV pundits than it is by the heart of Christ. Your tone is not like the tone of Jesus. It's not gracious. It's not seasoned with salt, right? You don't, you don't take the salt shaker and just dump out the salt, right? John Kellis does that sometimes. He'll, he loves a good prank. He'll just put a ton of salt on Emriana's food. And you know what she'll do? She'll spit it out. It's too much salt. It's disgusting. Season your conversation with salt. Be gracious to outsiders. Understand who they are. Understand that they're framing the world in a different way than you are. Right? And, and our goal is not to, like, win arguments. Our goal is not to, like, uphold our values. Our goal is to be ambassadors for the living God. These, there are eternal consequences here. So maybe you come to a place where you come to some sort of common understanding of who God is. You realize that you basically have the same idea of who God is. They believe there's a God. This person you're trying to season your conversation with salt, they, they believe that God has revealed himself. They, they see the church maybe not as a, a bad community, but maybe as a neutral community. And so the next kind of idea, God, man, the next kind of idea that you have to get to in this conversation is the idea of man. I'm up here on this stage. Y'all know I like being down there. I'm incredibly uncomfortable. Is the stuff on the is the stuff on the screen? Okay, okay, thanks. David Patton, chairman of the deacons, he gave me the nod. I know it's good. So maybe you have a common understanding of who God is. The next step is man. Well, who, who is man? What, 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 who are we? And how do we relate to God? Now, again, you've heard me say this. We, we live in a basically humanistic kind of time, a humanistic age. You've heard me say that the mantra of kind of the modern humanistic moment is the song. It's an old song, but it's the Michael Jackson song from the 1980s. We are the world. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who will make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true. We'll make a brighter day, just you and me. And so if this is your mantra, your basic understanding of the human condition is we're good. We're on a pathway to God. We're, we're saving our own lives. You may have kind of heard all religions are basically the same, all attempts to get to God. It's some sort of attempt that everybody has to get up this mountain. But what is true, what of course God has revealed, is not that message. It is that we were created good. We were created to be with God, to be aligned with God and to rule over everything he created. But that we disobeyed God. We turned away from God's order. We turned away from God's command. And that when we sinned, when humanity sinned, we have infected our hearts with this knowledge of evil. One of my favorite kind of descriptions of human condition is from Luther. It says that man is incurvitus in se. Incurvitus in se. You know what that means? It means that, that your heart, the human condition, is that we are turned in on ourselves. We're, we're, we're curved back in on ourselves. Our expression of worship, 
that was designed by God to go out, to go toward him. Now is in curvatus inse, it's coming back at ourselves. You know, David Foster Wallace, a guy that you've heard me quote several times, secular author, he says that the, the basic assumption of every human is wrong, and it is that the universe is all about us. This is this. This is Luther. David Foster Wallace got a lot of what Luther got. He just didn't get the Jesus part. But we're in curvatus inse. We're, we're turned back in on ourselves. We're self-worshippers. We're self-aggrandizers. We've, we've forsaken God's kingdom and we found ourselves, again to quote David Foster Wallace, in our own skull-sized kingdoms. And because of our sin, because of this, we've, we've become separated from God. We've become enemies of God. We've, 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 in a sense, we're in a sense fighting for a different kingdom. We failed to love God. We failed to love one another. And so Christians believe that the condition of man is actually fatal. And this has proven itself over and over and over again throughout history because every sinful man has died and everybody has died. And I think that when you're sharing your faith, you're trying to talk to somebody about why they need Jesus, this is, this is a big hurdle to get people from believing that they're basically good, right? We are the world. We're the ones who make a brighter day, like I'm doing basically good, to a point where they really realize they need a Savior. Not just a little help, not just a little boost, not just some good wisdom here and there, but they, that they are broken without a Savior. I think people kind of see this but it, it's, it, it, takes, it, it, takes some, uh, it takes some enlightenment. It, 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 takes, it takes you. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit showing them the condition of their heart. Francis Schaeffer, I love this quote. He once said that all God would have to do to condemn us is to hang a tape recorder around our neck. Francis Schaeffer died in the early 80s, so we could say an MP3 player, right? If you don't know what a tape recorder is. But to hang a voice memo around our neck that only recorded the times when you judged someone else, when you condemned someone else. So all the times that you saw someone doing something that you thought was wrong and you say, he shouldn't be doing that. I can't believe she just did that. How could a person ever do something like that? All God would have to do to condemn us is to hang a tape recorder around our own necks throughout our own life and record all the times that we bring judgment to others. Then at the judgment, all God would have to do is to play back for us the very judgments that we have made throughout our lives. And guess what? None of us would be able to live up to our own standard of righteousness. How much less are you able to live up to God's standard of righteousness? This is the condition of man before a holy God. This is the condition of man before a righteous God. And again, as Christians, our, our posture should never be, oh, we have found righteousness. We have done the righteous thing. No, it is we are humble sinners in need of the amazing grace of Jesus. And so the third stop in evangelism is Jesus. Once people understand how holy God is, that there is a God who has authority that is good, once people see their own condition before such a big and holy God, then, then the good news of Jesus is actually good news. <laughs> 
I remember talking to a guy one time and he said, look, Jason, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been saying the sentence, Jesus died on the cross for my sins my entire life. But to be honest, I have no idea what that means. And that's a good question. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? Why, why is the fact that some guy died on a cross 2,000 years ago important to you? Like, why does, how does that make any sense? Well, what is happening there that is important for you? And of course, the answer is this. I love to kind of think through 2 Corinthians 5.21 and answering this question. It says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. The first thing we have to believe about Jesus is that he lived a totally righteous life. He was perfectly innocent. His life was always in line with the will, with the righteous order of the Father. His life was perfect. He, he lived the life that we were called to live, that we were supposed to live, that we have incurvitous insight, that we have abandoned in, in, the, self of, in, the, self, in the sake of self-worship. Jesus lived that life. It was always directed at God's glory. But then he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he, he went to the cross for our sake. In a sense, what Christians believe is that our sin, my disobedience, my self-worship, was transferred to Jesus and that he endured the wrath of God, the right wrath of God against our sin, the just wrath of God against my sin and the sin of the whole world, the sin of all who would believe. Jesus endured God's wrath against this sin so that if we believe in him, our sin is not counted against us because it has been counted against Christ. And he willingly paid that price. He, he took care of that account. And then he overcame death. He overcame that sin. He was raised again. And so now in Christ, we have the hope of life and of resurrection and of eternal life with God. The very holy God, even though we were sinners, even though we had curved in on ourselves against him, even though we couldn't even obey our own moral standard, much less his moral standard, has sent us a savior, has sent us someone to save us from our own human condition. Man cannot sell, save ourselves. We're not saving our own lives. We're only getting deeper and deeper into rebellion. But God has sent us a savior. And, and, and for this kind of salvation, only Jesus will do. Fully God, so that he could take on the sin of the whole world, and fully man, so that he could save men and women like us. Al Mohler once said, and I think this is so good, if all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion so that we can have some hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules or a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into our sovereign self, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, 
If we need someone to rescue us from ourselves, from our human condition, only Jesus will do. And so the last stop in evangelism is response. In evangelism, we, we, we have to call people to respond to this truth. If there is such a God who is all authority, if we've rebelled against him, and if there is such a Savior, well, how do you respond? And, and again, there's a lot of confusion on this. You know, kind of a lot of what I've heard in church circles is, well, you respond by living a moral life, right? Respond to this by doing a little better. I, I was, when I was in a church, I pastored a little country church in Indiana when I was in seminary, and one of our deacons prayed every week, Lord, help us do a little better this week than we did last week, right? And that's, you know, that's an okay prayer, but, but I think that's a lot of people's perception of what, how we respond. We just do a little better. We just behave a little better this week than we behaved last week. As I mentioned, kind of in the evangelistic church that I grew up in, as a child, uh, there was a big emphasis on praying the prayer, right, and walking the aisle. You had to pray the prayer and walk the aisle. And, and when I was a kid, you know what I thought? I thought that how I was saved was by praying the prayer correctly, right? They would say, if, if, if you pray this with all your heart, if you really mean it, then you'll be saved. And so rather than trusting in Jesus, I trusted in the prayer, and so every week I would pray the prayer and like I thought, well, maybe it didn't work last week. And so I would like squint my eyes a little harder, you know, and like get a little further on my knees because I'm going to show that I mean this. But I think the better, I think better than all of these things, I, I, I'm not saying that I discount anybody's earnestness in these appeals, but, but really I would just invite you as you're trying to share your faith to encourage people to respond the way the Bible tells us to respond. And that is by repentance and faith. By repentance and faith. Have you seen your life of rebellion against God? Do you turn from that? Do you turn from that? Do you, do you forsake that? Do you get away from, from anything in your life that is not of the Lord? And do you look to Jesus in faith? Do you, do you look to Jesus trusting him with your identity, with your whole life? Trusting him fully, trusting that he is right, that his way is best, even when it's hard, right? Even when it's hard. You know, all the time in my Christian life, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. I've been a Christian most of my life. I'm a professional Christian, right? I'm a pastor. And all the time in my Christian life, I come up with, still to this day, I come up against things about Jesus that are hard for me to believe. And that requires repentance and faith. I, I'm turning away always from my false understanding of truth and reality. And I'm learning to trust the Lord. And I think, I think one of the, the false things that we've done kind of in our appeals of Christianity is we've, we've kind of treated salvation as this just magical pill and then you switch over into moralism. But no, the gospel is something that, man, you, you, if you're not a believer here today, Right now, I just want to encourage you to, to repent of your sin, whatever it is you're trusting in, trust in Christ. I want to appeal to you toward repentance and faith. And if you've been a believer for 60 years, I want to urge you toward repentance and faith. <laughs> there is something in your heart that is rebelling against the Lord right now that you need to repent of. And there's an area that you're not trusting Christ that you need to trust him for. Repentance and faith. This is the appeal. And one of those areas of repentance and faith may be 
for some of you, your reluctance to obey the command of Christ to be his witnesses, to be his ambassadors. That's really this appeal. Will you take on this high calling? It's a high calling to be an ambassador for God. I mean, what kind of a calling is that? You know, John Kellis yesterday at baseball practice won the Hustle Award. That's the highest honor Coach Bert O'Neill gives out at Buckhead TB7 Baseball. Or uh, 7R, it's not T, we're not I'm playing T-ball, it's Coach Pitch. But anyway, Coach Pitch Baseball. And he was so proud. You know, he got the Hustle Award. And you could tell he, was, he stuck his chest out for his teammates. He's a leader now. He got the Hustle Award. They got to look to him. He's a hustler. Not, no, he's, a, he's a kid that hustles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, think back, you know, a lot of you, you guys have had stuff like that happen. You know, somebody said, hey, you're going to take the last shot. Somebody said, hey, we got to have this sales pitch. It's really important. You're going to go give it. Somebody said, hey, we need to get you. This is really important. We need to get you out. You got to go close this deal for us. You got to do this for us. You're the one. Hear this. Man, congratulations. Those are great honors. But the God of this universe has said, look, I want you to be my ambassador. I want you to be my witness. And there's somebody out there. There's somebody out there. There may be a couple people out there that God is saying, I want to appeal to them through you. What an honor. What an honor that somebody's trajectory may be saved, may be changed, because God appealed to them through you. So I, I hope that you take this appeal seriously, that you're prayerful, that you're creating a rhythm in your life of outward-facing relationships, that you're building those relationships with folks, that you're sharing the, the gospel, that you're, that you're following up. And so as we meditate on this, as we've talked about God and his greatness, as we've talked about our condition before him, as we've talked about Jesus, what he's done for us, then I want to invite you to respond. Now, if you're a believer here, I want to invite you to a time of communion. And our deacons are going to be coming forward to pass out these elements. If you have trusted in Christ and you're wanting to live for him by repentance and faith, then I encourage you even in this time to take these elements and to hold on to them as a reminder of that. But if you're not a believer here today, I, I just want to invite you in this moment, as, as Jordan is playing, as this elements are being passed, to, to not take the element, to just let it pass you by, but to pray, to, to repent. What is, it, what is in your life that you need to repent of, that you need to turn away from, and to trust in Christ, to trust in Jesus, to give your life to Jesus? And so let's enter into this posture of repentance and faith as these elements are passed and as Jordan leads.